Welcome, you're listening to Cantus Firmus. I have as my guest today Dr. Stephen R. Haynes. Dr. Stephen Haynes is professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Rhodes College, where he teaches courses on a variety of subjects, including humanities, the Bible, the Holocaust, and addiction and recovery. He was educated at Vanderbilt University, Florida State University, Columbia Theological Seminary, and Emory University, where he received his PhD. Haynes is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA and is theologian in residence at Idlewild Presbyterian Church in Memphis. He's married and has three children, Christiana, 27, Matthew, 24, and Braden, 13. Finally, he's the author or editor of 12 books, including Reluctant Witnesses, Jews and the Christian Imagination, Noah's Curse, The Biblical Justification of American Slavery, The Bonhoeffer Phenomenon, Portraits of a Protestant Saint, the Last Segregated Hour, The Memphis Neelands and the Campaign for Southern Church Desegregation, and now The Battle for Bonhoeffer, Debating Discipleship in the Age of Trump. And it's this last book, uh, which was just released, that I'm, I'm really interested in uh, discussing today. So uh, thank you very much for, for being here, Dr. Haynes. Thank you for having me, Cody. So uh, to begin with, this isn't the first book you've written about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, so I, I might like to ask you, to, what drew you to him, and why do you think so many Christians, you know, in the far right, far left, and everything in between, find him so intriguing? Well, I started reading Bonhoeffer when I was in college, actually. I was uh, part of a um, evangelical parachurch ministry for high school students, and as part of our leadership training, we were handed a copy of uh, The Cost of Discipleship and asked to read it. We weren't giving, given much help in and interpreting the uh, context or um, situation out of which this book had arisen, but it was really intriguing. And clearly there was somebody, the author was somebody who really understood um, the demands that Christian discipleship made on people. And so I found it really uh, sort of riveting. And it was only later in graduate school that I got a sense for who Bonhoeffer really was, what his biography uh, was like and sort of reading some of his later stuff. Um, and so I had this sort of background uh, in, in Bonhoeffer's thought that uh, you know, stuck, stood with me. And when I got to Rhodes and I started teaching, uh, you know, my classes kind of developed my repertoire of classes. One of them was a class on the Holocaust. And of course I started to look at the German church struggle and how Christians had reacted to uh, address the Nazi threat or the Nazi opportunity, depending on their perspective. And Bonhoeffer became even more intriguing because I saw that he was somebody who had you know, seen very clearly early on the threat that Hitler represented. And despite his youth, had been uh, committed to doing something about it. And so I became uh, intrigued with Bonhoeffer yet again. And Along the way, I realized that, as you've already mentioned, you know, Bonhoeffer is somebody who is embraced by people on the left and the right and the middle and people who are devout Christians, people who are agnostics. And I tried to uh, sort of set out a typology for understanding Bonhoeffer's reception. And I thought it would maybe be a chapter in a, in a longer book. It turned out to be a book all on its own called The Bonhoeffer Phenomenon. And I don't think there's anybody who, whose reception is quite as broad, quite as interesting as, as Bonhoeffer's. And um, so that has really intrigued me. And I think it led ultimately to the, to the battle for Bonhoeffer. Oh, that's really interesting. So he's an interesting guy to read because 
Um, he's, you know, not exactly like a conservative fundamentalist, but he also, he does say a lot of things that, you know, more conservative Christians are going to appreciate. Right. Um, and I think in particular his, um, you know, struggle against Nazism, you know, we sort of have a tendency to look at, um, you know, whatever, whoever we think are the, the dangerous people on the other side of the political spectrum from us <laughs> as, as these sort of Nazis in a way, like, you know, types. Right. Um, and, that's what I, I think is kind of fascinating about Bonhoeffer because he's he has been co-opted um, by the political and religious right and left and kind of weaponized. And, um, you know, so, yes. you know, I mean, a little bit of biographical background, you know, he's this German uh, church theologian who, um, you know, is very much against what the Nazis are doing, both in their treatment of the Jews, but also in their trying to take control of the German church and, and, you know, really, I think people are not necessarily aware of some of the, not just the issues like in orthopraxy, as far as like how the, the Nazis treated, you know, Jewish people and minorities, but the ways that they challenged the biblical orthodoxy, the way that they wanted to handle scripture and, and you know, had this sort of Marcionite tendency to cut out Jewish things. Right. Um, and, you know, all these other things, I mean, they, they really kind of took like the sort of German liberal view of Jesus and then racialized it. Um, and so it seemed that a lot of Bonhoeffer's contemporaries were fine to, uh, want to go after the Nazis for what they were doing to, um, you know, uh, to Jesus and, and orthodoxy, but they didn't really want to go after some of these issues about how, you know, human beings made in the image of God were being treated. Yeah. Um, and, you know, before we maybe get into that a little bit more, I, I do want to know how you see Bonhoeffer, like, as far as who was he really when it comes to these issues of political and religious right and left? Does he fit neatly into one of these categories? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and, you know, it would be really useful if I could tell you exactly who Bonhoeffer was and then everybody who, you know, appreciated Bonhoeffer could sort of, you know, um, take their lead from that. But he's a, he's a complicated figure, and one reason he's complicated is he, he doesn't write he writes in situations of extremity where there's a lot of pressure, like the cost of discipleship is a good example. So he writes this book, uh, presumably about, ostensibly about discipleship, but he's also writing about what it means to be a Christian in an authoritarian state. But he can't say a great deal about that. Um, a lot of his letters from prison are very provocative. Um, they're very, uh, they've been a great boon to sort of uh, radical theologians and trying to rethink Christianity after World War II, but by nature, they're letters and they're not developed treatises. And so we have, the diff it's, it's difficult to really understand, you know, what he meant, what he would have said later and so forth. So his, a lot of his writings are sort of elliptical in this way. Um, I think what you said earlier about Bonhoeffer being uh, sort of attractive to evangelicals is very true. He writes in a way that, uh, that, that has a lot of, uh, you know, sort of pious language and a lot of, uh, it's very clear that his, his commitment to Christ is um, fundamental. And, you know, these are things that one doesn't always find in continental theology. So he, he's definitely a church theologian. He's definitely someone who is, um, you know, committed to sort of understanding what the meaning of Christ is for, for his time. Um, and when you combine that with his, uh, what people refer to as his martyrdom, his his commitment to to his um, you know 
opposition to Nazism despite the consequences. I, I think you fuse those things together, it becomes very compelling. And I think people who are, you know, I've met many people who don't know much about Bonhoeffer and frankly aren't that, you know, aren't going to go off and, you know, read um, Sanctorum Communio or, or his dissertation on the church or something, but are so impressed by his his level of commitment that he was willing to, to die for his beliefs. That's all they really need to know. And so because of that, I think Bonhoeffer tends to be um, sort of shaped into people's own, own images, right? We, we kind of see what we want to see, what we need to see, which is one thing I'm, I'm talking about in the battle for Bonhoeffer, the way that Bonhoeffer becomes very useful for people who are in a you know particular political argument, particular political moment who need to, you know, who want to sort of add Bonhoeffer's moral gravitas to their to their side of the story. And so they they bring him in in one way or another. Sure, sure. I was, I'm thinking specifically when you talk about um, him not always writing super explicitly or clearly um, this phrase religionless Christianity that shows up in the letters and papers in prison that I'd you know heard was kind of a central issue here in, in the kind of the battle for Bonhoeffer, as you say. When I read that in the letters and papers from prison, I said, okay, this is the section. I'm, I'm going to figure this out, and we're, we're going to see what he really says here. And then I read it, and I thought, I really don't know what he's saying here. <laughs> and, and, you know, okay. it is, there are times, obviously, and I, I like the phrase that you used, you know, um, commitment to Christ, and it was kind of the same sort of phrase I was thinking about, but I, I think I added the word radical to it in my head, that what I think maybe impresses so many evangelicals is his radical commitment to Christ that you don't often see on you know, you don't, a lot of liberal theologians, I think, can often be sort of, you know, dry and theoretical. And, but, you know, Bonhoeffer is very warm to the person of Christ. Yeah. But also willing to challenge certain, you know, issues that he was seeing in the church. He, you know, was a bit of a rabble rouser in that sense. Well, you know, one issue I think that comes up a lot in these controversies over Bonhoeffer is his alleged pacifism. Yeah. And th that seemed to be, it seemed like most people agreed that he was a pacifist, generally speaking, um, you know, in, in previous decades, uh, apart from that detail that he was maybe implicated in a plot to assassinate Hitler. There is um, that. What's that? Is that? There is that. Yeah, there's that. And, you know, th th there's a lot of debate about, you know, how does that fit into this whole thing? And, and, you know, maybe a statement he makes, I think, on his book on ethics about sometimes having two contradictory values in front of you that you have to choose one or the other. The, the, the suggested idea is that he saw killing Hitler as an evil, but he also saw what Hitler could do as such a great evil that to not try to kill him was also an evil in a way, and that he would just sort of have to choose one and then pray for forgiveness, which, you know, which is, which is, which is I mean, obviously, that's a really tough spot to be in. It's hard, even if you're a pretty strong pacifist, it's hard to fault him too much for that. Um, what I would add to that is to say that it was it was an evil uh, for for him, given what he knew, given for the position he was in, um, the sort of connections he had not to do something. I don't think he would ex extend that to to say that everybody was required to do what he did. I think he realized this was a very personal hmm. um, situation that he was in, given his connectedness. Well, and, but but I think the, the underlying question here is is whether he was actually a pacifist at all. And um, I think you know obviously that's been challenged by the religious right and uh, Eric Metaxas's 2009 biography, which seemed to have got you really thinking about this issue about how Bonhoeffer's pulled in all these directions yeah. <laughs> by by later thinkers. 
Um, so I, I do think that that's a that's a worthy thing to think about is um, how Bonhoeffer thought about violence. Uh, and and yeah. as, as you read him, I mean, do you think that Metaxas is right that he wasn't really a pacifist at all, or do you see that there's this more nuanced approach? Well, I think there's a nuanced approach to this, and I think it's it's one that actually Bonhoeffer scholars had sort of set out, you know, years before Metaxas came along, but he wasn't really familiar with this with this scholarship, and so it was difficult for him to really follow uh, the thread of thinking. But uh, Clifford Green has uh, talks about Bonhoeffer as having a, a peace ethic, and I think this is maybe a, a better, more fruitful way to think about Bonhoeffer's approach to violence than is, you know, pacifism or non-pacifism. I mean, Bonhoeffer throughout his career was focused, well, at least after, um, you know, uh, New York in 1930, 31 was focused on peace. And, you know, the demands of peace change depending on one's situation. Um, you know, they, they might be one sort of demand in the 30s and facing things like rearmament um, and approach to war is something very different. When you're thinking about, you know, the opportunity to oppose Hitler. But I think it wasn't so much a principled rejection of violence, but a commitment to peace and a commitment that had different demands. The other, the other scholar who talked about this way back in the 70s in a really interesting way was Larry Rasmussen. Um, in his dissertation, he really makes it clear that, that you know, Bonhoeffer's um, pacifism, let's say, you know, leading up to World War II, um, is very specific. You know, he says, I can't take up arms in this conflict at this time, given this leader. Um, and I think that's that's convincing that it was uh, Bonhoeffer's pacifism was was always informed by the, the needs, the, the demands of the time. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting to think about. Whereas I think I come from a more, um, you know, strongly Christian pacifist background. I think if nothing else, when you read what you know, what Jesus says, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, if nothing else, you ought to be moving toward that peace ethic, even if you don't uh, ultimately find that, um, you know, even if you don't, even if you don't necessarily hold to it radically or, you know, in every scenario. So um, one thing I, I thought um, about le recently, there was that statement on social justice that um, this was kind of fairly controversial from a lot of evangelical leaders. Um, yeah. although, although a lot of evangelical leaders also specifically spoke against it. But but in light of like these recent debates on on whether social justice distracts from the gospel, I, I wonder if you think there are any lessons we can learn about um, or from Bonhoeffer um, and how he you know how he tried to make the the so-called Jewish question a central issue for the confessing church at the time, and the pushback he received um, from that from all of his colleagues who just wanted to challenge this sort of the Nazi Nazis attempting to redefine traditional Orthodox beliefs. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think Bonhoeffer's a great guide in this regard because in the sort of one of his shining moments was in April 1933 when he was asked to, to give a paper at a group of um, a meeting of a group of pastors on uh, the Jewish question. And, you know, this, this document, this paper is called The Church and the Jewish Question. And it says a lot of interesting things in there. But one of the things that's very clear is his line that, you know, the church has an unconditional obligation to the victims of state action whether or not they belong to the Christian community. And I don't know if it's, that's the point where people got up and walked out, but at some point they did. And it was very clear for him, you know, I don't know that he would, he would have used this language, very clear that the so-called, so you know, social justice and the demands of, of the hour with regard to social justice were inseparable from the gospel as he understood it. And, and 
the, the whole question, well, there was the theological, theological question about what is the state, what does the church owe the state? Um, but that was sort of suspended given the, the, the needs of real people at the moment that were being, whether or not they were Christians or Jews or Jewish Christians, they were being threatened and they needed to be defended. And this was a departure from Lutheran orthodoxy and in the understanding of church and state. And I think maybe that's that's what people heard that they they had a hard time accepting. Bonhoeffer is the only one, he's the only German theologian that I know of who's making that sort of categorical statement about the church's obligation to, to help victims of state action, you know, at that moment in time. Um, so I think he's, he's a great example of where, you know, this discussion um, is, is in, at certain moments becomes irrelevant. You do what Jesus would do. You do what Christians feel are called to do. Um, you know, you support you support people who are in need. You, you address injustice. You um, bind up the wounds and so forth. And that's uh, that would be regardless of, of the government's position on the issue, and and, and you know, what, however you however you interpret Romans thirteen. It's interesting. He doesn't mention Romans thirteen, and I think probably in the back of people's minds who are listening, they're thinking, well, what about Romans 13? But I think it's significant that he doesn't uh, address it. It's also significant in the Barman Declaration that they don't cite Romans 13. Um, they cite a book, uh, uh, sorry, they cite a, a verse from First Peter, which says something like, you know, um, fear God, honor the emperor, or something like that. In other words, put God first. And I think for, for Christians who understood what, what was at stake with Nazism, Romans 13 didn't apply. Um, they sort of instinctively knew that. And, um, uh, of course, for pro-Nazis, they thought Romans 13 had to be respected. But I think they had obvious reasons for taking that view. Yeah. Well, and, and, and uh, uh, to be clear for those who you know, have some of this background, the Barman Declaration, that was the statement of the Confessing Church as to their, their principles in light of the Nazi uh, attempt to you know, co-opt the church. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And it was it was um, it didn't say a lot about the Jews. It didn't say anything about the Jews. It was timid in that regard. But it was it was very significant that um, you know they did they did not take a traditional view of the of the church's um, obligation to sort of you know honor the state at all costs uh, based on the assumption that God had established it. I mean, this was really um, they were taking a stand against against the state, but also against Nazi Nazified Christians who wanted to uh, align themselves with uh, with Nazism. Yeah, uh, big issue. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and, and you know, it, it's fascinating to look at all of these issues that we uh, we divide over in the church. Um, the issues that we think are of, of grave, you know, significance. So, you know, Catholics and Protestants will will um, you know talk about. Um, you know, how we treat the body of Christ and the Eucharist and, and, and the, the level of respect that we should afford it. But here in this statement, you know, you, uh, the Barman Declaration, you had this sort of debate. And ultimately, there were people who said, well, those kinds of questions are more important maybe than, than um, uh, how we treat the bodies of men and women and children made in the image of Christ. And we have to just sort of keep that as a secondary issue. It, it, obviously, it seems that Bonhoeffer disagreed with that. I'm, you know, that that whole issue about the way they debated how how to involve the Jewish question. Um, I mean, ultimately, would you say they were wrong and Bonhoeffer was right about that? And and where does that 
what kind of example does that give us now? When you know, obviously, I don't. I'm not. I'm not I don't want to make a com- direct comparison between Hitler and Trump or something like that. But you know, where where we are uh, just in, in a contemporary situation in general in the West, um, how should we be approaching some of these issues? Here's here's the comparison I would make um, to our uh, you know current situation. Um, it's not so much between Hitler and Trump. It's between. Uh, German Christians, um, that is the Deutsche Christen, the Christians who were really wanted to endorse Nazism and sort of jump on the Nazi bandwagon, and Christians uh, today who are sort of all in uh, on Trump. And I think the question is, uh, in both cases, what are people willing to put up with to get something they want? So in the case of German Christians, what they wanted was a sort of... um, uh, sort of revival of Christianity, you know, which had sort of lost its cultural significance to some extent in the in the Weimar era, um, a sort of bringing back of traditional values, um, uh, you know, German pride and so forth. That's what they wanted. What they were willing to give up was, um, you know, state action on the Jewish question, which may have bothered them, but they didn't see it as really that important. I think today the question is, um, for Christians who support Trump, what are they willing to put up with in order to get a Supreme Court that, you know, will strike down Roe v. Wade. Um, it's really, a, I think, a pretty simple analogy. And um, and, and I'm not saying that, that there's a direct, obvious answer to that question, but it, it is, if you answer that question with the Nazi situation in mind, you know, it, it's very, um, uh, it's it's very sobering, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and what's interesting to me is that, um, the church is essentially compromised by um, not just these sort of racialized politics in, in the, the Nazi era, but also um, a politicized, um, you know, patriotic, nationalistic uh, kind of hybrid. And, um, you know, one thing that comes to mind is um, some of the, uh, the songs and, and, and hymns that um, were modified <laughs> Uh, in the Third Reich, uh, the, the one that uh, comes to mind immediately is the Silent Night, um, where it was uh, tweaked to be about Hitler standing on guard and watching over the German people while they slept. Uh. <laughs> Some of that seems really ridiculous looking back, but but the I think the underlying point is a good one, which is that um, there was a, a real uh, sort of layer of patriotism among Christians. And in this midst of this patriotic movement, this nationalist movement, they didn't want to be out of step. You know, they didn't really speak out against the, the German government because they knew they wouldn't get anybody to sign the document. People, people may have been against uh, Nazifying the church, but they didn't want to be perceived as being un-German or, or anti-Hitler. And that was an important distinction. Are there, are there clear um, examples for us there about where maybe we should draw some of those lines between a maybe a healthy patriotism and a and a radical uh, you know kind of Christ denying <laughs> nationalism. Yeah, well, I don't know that the lines are clear. I mean, they're never clear in situations like this, right? But I think the questions maybe are clear, right? But so we we need to be asking um, if if particularly if we're interested in learning from this this history, um, we need to be asking um, you know in what sense are we reluctant to criticize someone or something or some policy because we don't want to be considered unpatriotic or, you know, uh, you know um, sort of favoring the enemy or something like that. I think, you know, you read these, um, 
especially there's a book by Vicki Barnett called For the Soul of the People. It's a study of the confessing church. And it's really eye-opening for me because you realize how timid most of the people in the confessing church were and how little they really wanted to step out uh, and be perceived as being against the government or even sort of um, taking a wait-and-see attitude, right? They wanted to be they wanted to be considered part of this movement, and they didn't want to have their patriotism questioned. And as a result, um, they sort of allowed Hitler uh, a chance to amass power. Uh, and when they finally came around and realized, whoa, we should have done something, it was really too late. In our present situation, um, oftentimes a criticism of policies or, or you know, nationalistic or racialistic almost from, from people who would disagree with that criticism gets wrapped up in reverence for the troops. And um, I, I wonder how much, I mean, I wonder how much of that was, was the case in, in Nazi Germany or how much of it was just sort of a straightforward, well, this is your, this is the fatherland and, and that's it. Or, you know, how does it sort of, does, does that get wrapped up at all um, in your understanding with um, a, uh, you know, reverence for these sainted men, men in the military? That's a really good question. I hadn't thought of that before, but I think there there are some analogies. I mean, you had uh, in the wake of World War One, you had a lot of people who were wounded. Um, you had a lot of veterans with with very scarring memories. I think they were a constant reminder of people who had really sacrificed a lot. And um, I think it was difficult for people to express what might be considered anti. Think about pacifism, for instance, right? Bonhoeffer's decision not to join the army. It's hard for us to imagine what that would have been like. Uh, conscientious objection in our culture is, is countercultural enough. Imagine doing that in Germany. People were executed for that stance. So I think the idea that, um, that one would you know, not support the country, would not you know, agree to serve, would, would question military decisions, uh, was, was really... Uh, a zone where nobody wanted to find themselves. Well, yeah, and it seems that I mean, in World War One, at the very least, um, in the aftermath, um, this faith in the German people and in the German military led them to to not really accept the loss. <laughs> um, yeah. So that and that was really, you know, Hitler sort of stepped in with, and he wasn't the first one, but he stepped in with this explanation of, well, this was, you know, this was the stab in the back. You know, the, the, we didn't lose the war. The Jews forced, you know, somehow by their machinations, right. um, you know, they did something to, to, to force us to lose the war. Right. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I, I, I think about that a, a fair bit, this, um, how it becomes so difficult for so many folks to, um, to separate questioning policies, including even like military policies, because, yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of young, you know, German men in, in the military in World War One and Two who are trying to protect their country and may have the the best, uh, you know, uh, intentions at heart. But at the end of the day, they're still invading, you know, Czechoslovakia, and <laughs> you know, it becomes very difficult sometimes to separate these things, particularly when you have a, a state that functions in some sense as, as like a as a religion in a way, and, and yeah. you know, military becomes sort of sainted figures. I think that's right. Um, okay. Wow. Okay. So maybe just kind of a, a broader question. Um, what do you see as, are the dangers of the church becoming too intertwined with state power? Uh, what were they in, you know, Hitler's Germany and, and what, what would they be today? Yeah. Well, you know, I've been thinking about this question since I saw it, uh, in your email, I think, you know, there, there are two different questions. 
One is, should the state be political? I mean, should the church be political? Should it have political interests? Um, should it be concerned with social justice? All of which I think is, is yes. Um, but state power is a little different, right? Because that sort of puts us in the situation we were talking about earlier where Christians want the uh, benefits uh, and the, um, the perks of state power. And so, you know, Trump has this uh, collection of evangelical advisors and uh, they're the visiting Trump Tower in the White House. And this is this is very alluring, you know, that siren song of, of state power. And I think those two things can be very and can get confused very easily. So that I think, you know, Christians need to be very concerned with politics. I think they need to be very um, concerned with justice. I think they need to be very wary of being co-opted. I don't know if you've read the book yet, but um, in the last chapter, I talk about some of my own experiences and how they've kind of shaped me. And I was um, the main experience that's important in this regard is that I was uh, a kid growing up in church, Key Biscayne, Florida, um, where Richard Nixon had a house. And so he would visit our church occasionally. Uh, Our pastor got very close to him, was invited to the White House um, you know, would, would preach, uh, was a spiritual advisor to the president and so forth. And then when Watergate happened, uh, everybody was shocked um, because we had come to sort of think of this man as, as one of us, as an evangelical Christian. And then when he, um, our pastor, John Huffman, sort of confronted him and said, did you know anything about Watergate? He said no. And then when it came out that he did, Huffman publicly repudiate, repudiated him in sort of Time magazine. And I just, that's always been it's sort of had a twofold effect on me. One is being really suspicious of politicians who court evangelical support, but also the sort of courage that was demonstrated by our pastor, just drawing the line and saying, look, regardless of our friendship and the fact that you sort of align with my own political views, I'm not going to let you get away with calling yourself a Christian, um, given the way you've acted. And um, I just, I think this... Um, the whole Trump revolution has been traumatic for me in some ways differently. than it has been traumatic for other people just by bringing up that old wound of feeling manipulated and used by um, somebody who needed and wanted evangelical support, but really had no, had no interest in, um, didn't have the same values that we did, I guess is the way to say it. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, he wasn't the only one who I think became very disaffected um, by that closeness with, with Nixon that right. ended up being sort of a betrayal. I mean, famously, Billy Graham really stepped away from a political involvement after that. Um, and it seems, from my perspective anyway, that, that his, his son Franklin hasn't learned that same lesson from, from Trump yet. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I, I, I did want to say... Um, uh, you said I, if I had a chance to read the book yet, I was wanting to get a hold of it before this interview, and I think at the time that I looked at it, it was it was out of stock. It seems like it's selling really well. It, it um, did go out of stock really quickly. I don't know if you know, so but it's back in stock. So hopefully you'll get one soon. I absolutely want to get it. And um, and do you know if there's going to be a, a a Kindle version available? There should be a Kindle version. There's also an Audible version, which I don't know if it's out yet, but it's been recorded so i don't know what the wait time for that will be so yeah awesome okay wonderful um man it's it's been wonderful uh to talk to you and i've been excited about this book since i uh saw it i mean i, I think we, we need a book like this right now um because i think bonhoeffer does provide i mean in a, in a very interesting a very helpful test case 
um, for how to relate to, to power, and he's somewhat of a, of a repudiation also of what maybe could be called a, a more faithless approach of wanting to get state power on your side and not actually trusting God to do the right thing, regardless of whether you have the state on your side. Yeah, it's an interesting, you know, the whole Constantinian model is, is talked about a lot. And I think people like Stanley Harwas and others, you know, reminded us a couple of decades ago that the post-Constantinian era is a good thing. Um, you know, we don't have the same temptations of being co-opted by the state. And I think this is kind of a resurgence of that Constantinian model of, you know, let's uh, Christianize the state or pretend like it's Christian and let's, um, you know, use it to, to uh, you know, further our own goals. And I think it's a dangerous sort of atavism. Thank you so much for uh, for, for being here, uh, uh, being on the podcast. I wish you, uh, um, you know, a lot of good fortune with your book. It seems like it's already doing very well, and I'm, I'm glad to see that. Um, I hope... Uh, <laughs> I hope it uh, makes a dent in uh, um, sort of, well, I don't want to be too, too mean about Eric Metaxas, but um, <laughs> I hope it makes a dent in at the very least some of the, the, maybe some of the negative things that came about with his biography. Although, I mean, it was, a, I think, uh, really introduced a lot of people to Bonhoeffer, and so I don't want to say it was a, a completely negative uh, um, influence on, on this whole issue. But It's really a mixed blessing. I mean, I, I say this in the book because it, it sort of made Bonhoeffer a household name in some ways, but it also led to some misconceptions that I think the rest of us have been fighting. So, Sure. Yeah, my, my, my first, when I heard about the book and that some people were reading it, I thought, hey, that's great. Maybe I should get a hold of this book. And then I saw him on Glenn Beck and I thought, oh, maybe there's something else going on here. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I had the same reaction. Yeah. Where I first saw him was on the Glenn Beck show. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Haynes. <laughs> Thanks, buddy.